as, uh, as we are now, I guess, 12 days into the new year, how are those New Year's resolutions coming along? Everybody uh, up to snuff so far on their, their resolutions? Uh, <clears throat> I was going to go on a diet, um, but uh, I decided I would wait till next year. I thought no good uh, reason to break a resolution at the beginning of a decade. Uh, so we'll, uh, we'll get started on that next year. But uh, regardless of your resolutions, I think as, uh, as we roll into a new year and a new decade, uh, depending on how you count decades, but that's another story for another day, um, <clears throat> we need more than anything, I believe, uh, to turn our focus on the Lord. Uh, we, we need to actually look away from ourselves and look to God. We need to ask ourselves, what would God have for me this year? And not just personally, but even for us corporately as a church, what would God have for us as a people, as a church in this coming year? Um, and so what we have been doing starting last week and uh, we'll close out next week is, uh, is going through a sermon series where we are looking to refocus ourselves on the mission that God has given us as a church. Uh, as a church, our mission statement uh, is the banner that we, we, we wave, that we plant in the ground that defines what we do and who we are and who we are seeking to be. It's, a, it's an expression of our commitment to Jesus' last words known as the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations uh, expressed in a way that's particular to our context, to where God has placed us. And so we say here at Treasuring Christ that our mission as a church is to multiply disciples who delight in, declare, and display the gospel in all of life and for the good of Ann Arbor. As a, as a church, we are unashamedly committed to what Jesus called us to, to multiplying disciples, to, to give ourselves to the task of, of following Jesus, of, of loving Jesus, and helping others do the same. So, so this isn't a, uh, you know, an advanced course in Christianity to multiply disciples is the baseline of Christianity. It is the, the calling of every person who puts their faith and trust in Jesus to be committed to loving Jesus, following him and helping others do the same. And, and that, that may take itself, that may look different in different seasons of our life at different times in our life, but it's the core commitment that God has given us as a church to multiply disciples. And, and as we think about what it looks like to multiply disciples, we, we have these three uh, key statements that, that we, we think are, help articulate what this uh, looks like on the ground, so to speak, what it looks like in our daily lives. And, and it begins with delighting in God. It begins with not just doing stuff for God, but recognizing who God is for us, recognizing what God has done for us. Our, our lives as a, as a follower of Christ and if, if you've been committed in following Christ for any period of time, the, the order uh, in which we think about the Christian life is important, right? Religion would say do, do more and more for God. If you do enough for God, God will be pleased with you. Jesus turns that upside down on its head. Says, says you can't do enough for God for me to be pleased with you, so I'm going to come down and do for you what you couldn't do for yourself. He comes in our place and takes our sin overcomes the grave and promises to all who will turn from their own way and trust in him that they'll have life. So the beginning of the Christian life isn't do, but the beginning of the Christian life is delight. Look to him and believe. 
And to delight means that, that you make God your greatest treasure, that you, you make him the, the one that you love supremely over all things. And as we delight in him, the, the outflow of that is that we live a life that, that makes known, that declares, and that, that demonstrates or displays who Jesus is and what he's done for us. That's the gospel. In, in a way, you could say that the gospel is, is what we're committed to, the, the good news of Jesus Christ who, who came and uh, was born of a virgin who lived a perfect life and who died in our place and for our sin and rose from the dead. That message is, is of paramount importance for us. And then the, the rhythms of how we respond to the gospel are delighting, declaring, and displaying. It's, it's how we respond to what God has done for us and that we don't segment this to Sunday or, or just some areas of our life, like when we're with this group of people or or we're maybe one with our, with our family or not with our family, it permeates all of our life. Our relationships, our, our work, our leisure, our academics, our parenting, our dating, all of these things are permeated by this good news of Jesus. And we believe as we are a people committed to Jesus and his gospel, we will be a people that are truly for the good of our city and the campus that's at the center of it. This is our mission, to multiply disciples who delight in, declare, and display the gospel. So when I think about God's calling for us as a church, I've heard this said by somebody, uh, and I'm not quite sure who it is. I can't find the direct quote. Um, <clears throat> so I'm tempted to think maybe I came up with it, but I don't think I, I did. Uh, but when I think about uh, the church, there are two primary images that come to mind. I'm actually pretty sure Tim Keller said this, but he says... I think about the church at Antioch and Israel and Babylon. The church at Antioch and Israel and Babylon. The church at Antioch seems like it makes sense, right? The church at Antioch we talked about last week from Acts 11 and 13. Uh, it was a church plant. It got started when some Christians were pushed out of Jerusalem. They came down to a place called Antioch and they started sharing the gospel. Uh, and when we looked at Acts 11 and 13, we saw that the church at Antioch was a diverse church they, they moved into this place, and you see these Jewish believers reaching out to these non-Jewish people, uh, which, which really hadn't happened much at that point in the history of the church and really in the history of religions. People were pretty focused on their thing and their group. So you have this people defined by Jesus, the first called Christians at Antioch. They move out, and they start sharing the gospel with people who look different than with people who think differently than, than them. And the gospel does a work and forms a church, and the church begins to grow through studying the word and the teaching of the word, and the church continues to expand as the people share the gospel. And, and the church at Antioch was not only this church that was birthed through the gospel and through evangelism and continued to grow through it, but, but it was a church that, that multiplied. It was a church that sent its people, even the very people who taught the church at Antioch, they were sent out on mission, Paul and Barnabas, to take the gospel where it hadn't gone before. I want us to be a church like Antioch, a church marked by evangelism, marked by making our faith known to others, not in condescending or, or arrogant or pushy ways, but in faithful, compelling, clear ways, making known the good news of Jesus. And that we would be a church marked by spiritual growth, digging into God's word, we, we introduced the Bible reading plan that began last Sunday. So uh, if, you, if you haven't picked it up, you can pick it up this week and, and jump into reading the scriptures with us. We, 
we can't see spiritual growth without a steady diet of God's word. We, we, we really, as we think about what it looks like to grow in the Christian life, you know, I, <clears throat> I think about, um, I joked earlier about going on a diet. When, when you think about New Year's, obviously you're bombarded with Planet Fitness, um, <clears throat> you know, advertisements for everywhere you go. Uh, if you watch the New Year's Eve uh, on any of the major networks, you know, Planet Fitness, I don't know how much money they spent. Uh, but whatever money they're making from memberships, they probably lost it in the advertising for uh, what they did uh, for that. But, I mean, I almost texted for 20 cents to join Planet Fitness. Um, in fact, two years ago I did, and it took me six months to figure out how to cancel uh, my, uh, my membership. Uh, and so they're smart. They, uh, I think my battery is out. Is that what the case is? Um, yeah. Um, and so <clears throat> um, when, you, when you think about what, uh, what it looks like to um, – forgot where I was going. <coughs> the, the batteries threw me off. Um, when, when, we think about, when we think about diets and exercising, I, I amuse myself at the, you know, I'll come up with anything, uh, you know, some, some kind of maybe shortcut to, to getting, you know, lean quicker, right? Like, I don't really want to diet, so I'll, you know, I'll just do this, and I don't really want to work out, so I'll do this, when, when in reality, if I would just commit myself to the, to the thing that, that I need that's healthy for me, I would experience what I ultimately desired, right? Like if you just commit to, uh, to doing the workout or you commit to doing the, doing the diet that you want to do, uh, you'll actually get the results that you want, most likely. But instead, we were like, well, I'll read a book about it, and then yeah, I'll go to a class, and you know, I'll try this. I know the diet says that you shouldn't have sugar, but if I do have sugar, no big deal. You know, like we, we come up with all kinds of shortcuts. It's like that in a Christian life, right? God, God's calling us to be a people marked by spiritual growth. And we're like, okay, I'll uh, listen to a podcast here. Maybe I'll go to church some. Maybe I'll do, you know, there's this one thing I saw. Maybe I'll get to that next weekend, right? Uh, we, we think we can grow, but we take shortcuts to the growth. Here, here's, the, here's the truth about spiritual growth in the Christian life. There is no shortcut to it. It only comes through God's word. God has given us what we need to grow in godliness and in, in spiritual growth in our relationship with him, and it comes through the word. And, and then we want to be a people who sin, who are sent out into our daily lives. And our prayer is that God would do a treasure in Christ. What, what God has called us to do in planting a church here in the heart of our city, that God would use us to do dozens and dozens of times over. That long after we're gone, the, the history and the, the testimony of Treasuring Christ Church in Ann Arbor, Michigan, it would be known as a church that sends its people on mission. I mean, just, just think about how, how we got here and how other churches got here. There were some believers who were committed to the Lord, who were seeking him in his word, who were seeking to make Christ known, and they sent out some of their people to start a church. No doubt there's some church splits and there's some bad things that happen in churches that, that grieve my heart and that should grieve yours. But when, when God's people are at their best, they realize that the kingdom of God isn't about them and their little thing that they're doing. But it's about what God wants to do and about making his name known where it's not. And that the best way to advance the gospel is the planting and the revitalizing of churches all over our state, all over North America, and all over the world. And I believe God wants to use us. Not just when we get to a certain size, not just at a certain point in our history, but even beginning now to be a people 
marked by sending. As a college student, you can be sent on mission this summer in any number of locations across North America to live on mission, to be discipled in the context of a local church and to make Christ known in cities like Boston and Seattle and Atlanta and Miami. Stay here in Ann Arbor and, and be a part of what God's doing here through Summerlinks. Through, through everyday life, God is sending us out into our neighborhoods, into our jobs, into the relationships and the people that God has given us, calling us to live faithfully to make him known. This is what God's calling us to, a church marked by evangelism, spiritual growth, and multiplication. But what does any of that have to do with Israel and exile and Babylon? Right? The church in Antioch was fun to preach on. Uh, now, we're, now we're jumping into Jeremiah and to exiled Israel and Babylon. Well, if the church at Antioch is a picture of a diverse church committed to advancing the gospel, exiled Israel and Babylon paints a picture of a distinct church for the good of the city. The, the picture of Israel and Babylon paints a picture of a distinct church for the good of the city. See, if we, if we are going to refocus ourselves on our mission, woven into our mission is a commitment to be a distinct church who multiplies disciples, who delight in, declare, and display the gospel, but to do so for the good of Ann Arbor, for the good of where God has called us to. And that brings us to Jeremiah 29. So let's look at Jeremiah 29 together. In Jeremiah 29, and <clears throat> it begins this way. It says, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests and prophets and to all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So just to pause right here. Uh, during this time in world history, just to kind of situate you, maybe some of you got this in uh, history class, maybe you didn't, but you have kind of three major players that, that run across the screen of world history during this time. You have the Assyrians who come to power and who, um, in, in a way, God uses to actually bring judgment upon some of his people, the northern part uh, of Israel. Um, and, and they are taken away into exile and defeated by the Assyrians. But over time, the Assyrians' power um, wanes, and the Babylonians rise up in power. And the Babylonians take over the Assyrians and, and really pick up where the Assyrians left off when it comes to the people of Israel. God had kind of showed his faithfulness to Israel, this, the southern part of Israel and where Jerusalem is, and protected them from being invaded by the Assyrians. Um, they had a king in, in the southern part of, of Israel who turned back to the Lord. All, all, the, all the kings, if you're reading through the Bible with us, when we get in First and Second Kings, it's, um, it's somewhat discouraging uh, and almost uh, expected as you begin to read through uh, the list of the kings. There's so, so many kings who do what is right in their own eyes and turn away from the Lord. But every now and then, God in his faithfulness will raise up a king or raise up a person within Israel who's faithful to the Lord and who turns the hearts of the people back to God. And, and God did that. Uh, and, and God protected uh, Jerusalem and the southern part uh, from the Assyrians. But uh, as the, the story goes, not only in Israel, but often in our own lives, we forget God's faithfulness to us. You ever been there? Right? God's been so good, so faithful, he's provided, and then you find yourself in a position where you're like, where are you, God? Where are you now? Are you really good now? I know you were, then, you were good then, I saw you provide then, but what about now? And, and sometimes it's not in blatant defiance, sometimes it's just the slow fade of, 
of lukewarm indifference and disobedience. And that's what happens. And it says in, in Jeremiah chapter 2, two things I have against you, God says to Israel. You've forsaken the Lord, who is the living water. And you've gone to cisterns, broken cisterns, trying to find your satisfaction. It's a, it's a, it's a vivid picture of, of what God is to us and what we seek to do when we turn away from God. God, God no doubt, is angry with his people and he, he rebukes them. But in rebuking them, he reminds them of the good that he is to his people. He says, I am the living water. I'm offering you something that deeply satisfies you, what you truly need. But instead, you, you think that that cistern over there will give you what you need, but when you get there, you find that it's broken. You think the gods of the other nations, the, the strength of Egypt will protect you, but it won't. You think that, that rather than the, the, a long obedience in the same direction, Rather than that bringing satisfaction, you think following the desires of your heart and pleasures wherever they may lead you is what will bring you satisfaction. What, what we experience today is no different than what they experience today. We're not looking to other powers for our security, but we look to other things for our security. When you're upset or when you're bored or when, when you don't know what to do, where do you look for answers? Where do you look for security and comfort? A substance, a person, entertainment. Like, I'm not saying that we lift all these things up to God, but the cumulative effect when we don't turn to God is, is all of these things lead us to broken cisterns that don't satisfy. And that's exactly what happens to Israel. And the, the picture is bleak. The, the Babylonians come, and not only do they conquer Jerusalem, but some of the people of Israel, they're left in Jerusalem, but some of them are taken to Babylon. And later on, uh, actually, after our three-week series here, uh, as we refocus on our mission, we're going to jump into the book of Daniel and, and look at what it means to be a people who live in exile. And, and Daniel is, is one of the, uh, the, the people taken from Jerusalem to Babylon. And, and what happens at, um, during exile with the Babylonians, what they were really unique about, uh, is they conquer a people, uh, and then basically what they do is they bring these people... Uh, to, you know, university, so to speak, uh, and they indoctrinate them. They, they assimilate them into the Babylonian culture. What they did is they took the royal family, they took the craftsmen and the, uh, the kind of workers, the people who are really valuable uh, to, the, to the society, and they bring them to Babylon. They give them new names, and they begin to kind of assimilate them into the culture. And so... Uh, there are some who are left in Jerusalem, and there are some who go off into Babylon. Jeremiah, the prophet, God leaves in Jerusalem. He's speaking God's word to the people who remain in Jerusalem, and he's trying to speak God's word to those who have gone off into exile. Now, uh, you can imagine those who have gone off into exile can be pretty despairing. If you read the book of Lamentations, uh, it's really a reflection, most likely written by Jeremiah, about uh, God's people being taken away into exile. Uh, and, and this picture is one of despair. And, and the people are taken away into exile, and they're, they're asking God, where are you in all of this? And to compound the difficulty, there are prophets in Israel at this time who, who are no longer committed to hearing from God and speaking God's word to the people, but they're speaking whatever they think the people would like to hear. 
It, it says in Jeremiah, um, back in, in Jeremiah 28, uh, Jeremiah 23, excuse me, verses 16 and 17. Thus says the Lord, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. This is God using Jeremiah to speak to, to the people. They prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They continually say to those who despise the word of the Lord, it's well with you. They say to those who stubbornly follow their own heart, no disaster will come upon you. So there are, there are people speaking on God's behalf, saying to the people, hey, don't worry about God's word. It's going to be fine. I know we're in exile. This isn't going to last. It's only going to be a few years. Then you'll be back here. Everything will be good. Don't, don't worry about Jeremiah. He's, he's off his rocker, right? Like if you read through Jeremiah, Jeremiah is, is really this, he's called the weeping prophet. Um, he, he gets threatened. It, it reminds me of, of Jesus as, as he goes on trial before Herod and uh, before Pontius Pilate. They, they bring Jeremiah on trial and they're, they're going to kill him because he's speaking God's word to the people saying repent or God's judgment's coming. And they say, let's kill this man. He's making us uncomfortable with his message. We don't like what he has to say. Let's get rid of him. And so Jeremiah is speaking in the midst of this time where there are these false prophets. And the Babylonians are ruling. And you wonder, where is God in all of it? What is God doing in all of it? What is God's word to his people? Well, well Jeremiah is going to write to those who have been taken captive into Babylon. And he's going to say, this is the word of the Lord. And here's a key difference that we, we have to understand between ourselves and, and Jeremiah's time. Israel here is in exile because of their sin against God. They've sinned against God and God has taken them into exile as a, as a form of judgment, of discipline. But we are not in exile because of our sin against God, but we do share the same identity with Israel. Did you know that? We ourselves are exiles. The New Testament tells us in, in 1 Peter that that we live as sojourners and exiles, that, that we live in, in this city seeking a city that's to come. Throughout church history, we've seen this described as the city of man and the city of God, that we simultaneously, as followers of Jesus, live in the city of man where we are here in this world, but we belong, our citizenship is to the city of God, what is to come. We are exiles, not because of our sin against God, but as followers of Jesus, we are in exile precisely because of our belief in God. We have been set apart by God and are to live as exiles in the places that God has put us. And so what does it look like for us to live as exiles, to, to be followers of Jesus, set apart for him in the places that God calls us to be? Another way of saying this is how can we be exiles on mission? Listen, listen more fully as we jump back into Jeremiah 29. <clears throat> it says in verse 2 that the king and the queen mother and the, the officials of Judah, the eunuchs, those who served within the royal kind of palace, the metal workers, all of them had departed Jerusalem. And Jeremiah sends this letter by uh, the hand of Elisah, the son of Shaphan, and Jemariah, the son of Hilkiah, uh, who... What happens, just as it's kind of confusing, one of the, the king of, of Judah is taken into exile, and the Babylonians set up another king in his place. That's Zedekiah. So you got the king of Babylon, Jeconiah, who goes into exile, 
um, bonus words if you can repeat that after the service. Um, and then, uh, then you have another king that's set up in his place, kind of a puppet king, if you will, named Zedekiah, who remains in, in Jerusalem. So here's the word of the Lord through Jeremiah to a people in exile. Verse 4, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. So as we've said, the context of Jeremiah's letter in verses 4 through 7 comes amidst all this false prophecy. And in chapter 28, there's a guy named Hananiah who prophesies to Israel. And he says to, to the people who are in exile, he says, don't stress, within two years you'll be back in Jerusalem. Jeremiah speaks up and he says, this man isn't speaking the word of the Lord. God has said already back in chapter 24 and 25, if you read it, you're going to go into exile and you're going to stay there 70 years. And then you're going to come back. And so Israel has um, gone into exile and they're just sitting on the, the river. It's called the Kabar Canal. If you read in, exile, in Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel and, and uh, Jeremiah kind of overlap uh, in terms of their timeline. And, and it begins with them sitting here on the river, kind of outside of Babylon, kind of dejected and in despair. And, and they're just thinking, well, maybe in two years' time we'll be back. But God says, no, you got 70 years, so settle down. Make yourself a home. Eat some food. Get married. Increase. Grow your families. But, but here's what I think is important to hear. To be a people who live in exile, we have to learn to listen carefully to the word of God. Our time, no doubt, the messages are different, but the scenario can be replayed time and time again. That God's people must continually be able to discern the voice of God in the midst of all kinds of competing voices, even voices that claim to speak for God. Before we do anything for God, we must firmly be committed to receiving from God what he says to us through his word. Catch that. Before you do anything for God, you must be firmly committed to receiving from God what he says in his word. Verses 8 through 9 make this, this warning clear. Don't be deceived, God says to his people. Don't be deceived, but hear the word of the Lord. So when I think about what it means to listen carefully to the word of God, I think there are two things that we need. We need discernment and we need obedience. Those two things go together. To, to be able to discern God's voice means that we're, we're able to understand and apply it. Here's a quote from a, an author who says, Discernment is the skill of understanding and applying God's word with the purpose of separating truth from error, right from wrong. It's the ability to, to having understood and, and known, knowing God's word to look at life and all, that it, all the things that come at us and to, to discern 
what would God have me do? This is, in a way, when we talk about the sermon, we're talking about wisdom. When I think about what the church needs today, more than anything, it's wisdom. Right? Wisdom grows out of God's word, listening to God. And then it applies the truth of God's word to our daily lives. Now, if, if you're like me, sometimes you hear something like that and you're like, you know, it's like somebody trying to explain to you how to fly a plane, right? If you've never flown a plane, you're like, okay, so you just get in there and if you pull down, you go up. And if you push down, you go, what is it? I'm not sure, right? You know, you're like, which way is it? Do I, is there a gas pedal? How do I turn left? How do I turn right? What's this look like? Have discernment, apply God's word to all of life, right? It's great when the Bible says, don't do this and do this. But what about what you should do tomorrow when you're faced with a difficult situation with your coworker? What about where you should live and what job you should take and who you should marry and, and, and what, uh, what decision you should make about, uh, you know, maybe a person that uh, is making some poor decisions and you want to help them, you want to love them and serve them. How do you approach these things? This calls for wisdom and discernment. If discernment is a skill, think of it this way. Discernment's like muscle memory. Now, <clears throat> I, I've experienced developing some muscle memory uh, a few times in life. You know, you play basketball, uh, you just instinctually, you know how to shoot, right? Uh, you, you, you <clears throat> Maybe it's your golf swing. I'm just telling you from my experience, I haven't learned any muscle memory in my golf swing, right? Like every, every which way it's going um, left and right. And when I don't want it to go straight, it goes straight, all those things. <clears throat> but the way you develop muscle memory is reps. The, the way you develop um, any type of muscle memory, whether it be in sports or working out, some other, some other things, some of you uh, watched a video this week of a lady uh, who goes shopping so much at Target um, that she was able to pick uh, an, a list of items uh, from Target blindfolded. Uh, so she went into her Target blindfolded and was able to get everything that she needed, down to the tea. The she was supposed to get unscented, like Tide uh, laundry detergent, and blindfolded, which is somewhere in the back of the store, you're right? Uh, I have to walk around 15 minutes to find it. She walks back there, Third row, like three over, bam, picks it up. Muscle memory, right? I don't, I don't know how much money she spends. It comes with a cost, right, to get muscle memory at Target. Um, but she, she did it through reps. She's gone there how many times and figured out where she needs to go. Well, how do we get reps and for discernment? We get reps through reading God's word. So let me just encourage you, as, as I've said before, I'll say again, it can be discouraging when you read God's word and you're like, I don't understand it. There's no sparks that fly and you're getting something fabulous from it. You read about, you know, the Tower of Babel and you're like, that really stunk. You know, like, what, what do I do with this? You know, you read the genealogies. You're like, what, what in the world does this have to do with anything? I don't even know how to say their names. <clears throat> but the reps of being in God's word, it trains us not only what God says, but how to apply it to all of life. When you come to God's word on Thursday and you're reading it and something's pressing on your mind or your heart, you're asking yourself, God, what do you have to say to me today? And he speaks from his word. But then when it's Monday, something else is on your mind and your heart. You're reading and it's, it's something else that God uses to speak to you. We need reps in God's word to develop the discernment to live a life of wisdom in the world that God has called us to. 
there are so many things pressing upon the believer today of how they articulate their faith. How you answer, perhaps, whether it be verbally or just internally, the questions that are lodged against Christianity. I'm not saying you need to be experts in everything. The one thing I want you to master or be mastered by is this. There's all kinds of books that are good that can help you with all kinds of topics. But commit yourself to this and you'll never be disappointed. I've never heard an older saint in the faith who got to the end of their life and they said to themselves, I wish I would have spent less time reading the Bible. I wish I would have spent less time hearing from God every day. It's the one thing that we need. Be compelled towards it because of what God offers it through us, not because you think you can earn something from God by doing it. He's holding out himself wisdom and discernment for us to know and to live by. We need discernment to live out the mission that God has has given us. So listen carefully to the word of the Lord, but but then also to, to be a people who are exiles on mission, we have to live faithfully where God has put us. Live faithfully where God has put you. I said earlier that Jeremiah is saying to the people of Israel, you're going to be there 70 years. Others are saying it's only going to be a few. But his letter is, is a clear message. It says a few things. And, and in a way, it, it's kind of very normal what he says. How do you live as exiles? Well, apparently you live normal lives. Find a place to live. I appreciate that normal life is, you know, eat some good produce, right? You know, get some good food. Um, I take it to mean that mean includes steak as well somehow within that, you know, produce. Um, eat good food, right? Find a place to live. Meet some people. Start some families. Grow. It's all very normal. Live life. But who took Israel into exile? Who put Israel in Babylon? Well, according to verse 1, it says that Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon those within Israel. But notice what God says. Thus says the Lord, in verse 4, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. God's calling us to live faithfully wherever he puts us. No doubt God uses the Babylonians. And I mentioned earlier there's three world powers. I said Assyria, Babylon. The, the one to come is the Persians or the Medes. They'll come and, uh, and take over where the Babylon, Babylonians left off. When we look at Daniel, we'll see the transition from the Babylonians to the Persians. <clears throat> we, Regardless of who's in power, regardless of what king comes or goes, what nation comes or go, what job comes or goes, what school comes or goes, live faithfully where God has put you. We all have a temptation to be like, like the Israels who are hoping that, well, maybe we'll just be here for a few years and then we'll get settled down. If you're a student, undergrad, grad, Wherever you're at, it's easy to think, well, I'm just here for a season, then, it'll, then I'll, I'll, I'll get settled down. Ann Arbor has a, a you know, flow of coming and going. I'm just going to be here for a little bit, and then I'm going to go and get settled down. And no doubt, that may be exactly what God intends. Our, our goal is to be a church that doesn't just say goodbye to people every three to four years, but to be a church that's committed to sending its people every three to four years. When you go, we, we want to love you and send you to the place that God's taking you, knowing that he's got you there for a purpose. 
to live faithfully wherever he has put you. So live your normal life, but know God has put you there. And then he says, seek the welfare of the city. This word is shalom. It's an all-encompassing wholeness. Uh, It strikes me uh, when we live in a world that's seeking wholeness. And there's an emphasis on on wholeness and well-being. God has always been a God committed to the shalom of his people, to their wholeness. And and it's a a reference to all aspects of peace, safety, security, welfare, prosperity. God's saying to Israel in Babylon, seek the welfare, the good, the peace, the security, the prosperity of the city that I've put you in. And I've wrestled with this because it seems kind of self-serving. Seek the welfare of the city because in that is your welfare, right? So we live here in our city. We should try to make it a better place because if it's a better place, then it's a better place for us too, right? But there's something different that, that I think presses us to see here that, that Israel is, is called by God not just to self-servingly seek to make their city a better place for themselves, but to seek to make their city a better place and primarily to seek the good of their city through praying to God on its behalf. Look at what it says in, in, uh, in verse, verse 7. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. What does it mean to pray for the good of the city? Look at this from Psalm 122. This is what, what God called his people to pray for Jerusalem, the very epicenter of God's plan for his people. Right. Israel knew what it meant to pray for the good of the city, because this is what they prayed for Jerusalem. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem, the the welfare, the shalom of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions sake, I will say peace be within you for the sake of the house of the Lord. I will seek your good. This is what Israel prayed for Jerusalem. And now Jeremiah is telling Israel to pray this for Babylon. Pray for the good of the city. Pray for its security and peace. Pray that Babylon would be blessed. Even though Babylon has just conquered you and taken you into exile, pray for them. Pray for their good. Seek their good. Yet it's not Israel's own good that they're called here to seek, but the Babylonians. This is, this is God's mission for his people. Not just to pray for it, but just like it does in Psalm 122, it moves from prayer to seeking the good of the city, to living in such a way that you seek to bless others. This is the closest thing in the Old Testament to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, pray for your enemies. Love them. Don't curse them. Bless them. Seek their good. This is what God's calling us to do. So, We live in exile precisely because of our belief in God. And God is calling us where we are in exile to live faithfully for him. And if we are going to live faithfully for him as a church, that means we are going to think about personal ways that we can be a blessing to people in our lives. Last week, I I, I tried to, to, to cut out all the noise of all the different possible ways that you could do this and ask you to think about one place that God has you in your life. Maybe it's on campus at the university. Maybe it's in your job. Maybe it's within your extended family. Maybe it's within a, a group of neighbors in your neighborhood. Maybe, maybe it's a group of friends or, or somebody that you have a, a hobby that you do with. Think about one area, one group of people that God's calling, that God's put you in. 
Not, not that you need to go to, but that you're already there. And then begin to, begin to think about one or two people that are there. Pray for them. This week, think about how you could be a blessing to them. This week, think about how you could serve them and seek their good. No strings attached. This isn't a bait and switch move. This is God's people living faithfully where they're at, seeking to be a blessing to others. You say, well, well shouldn't I say something about Jesus? Well, sure. That's what it means to live faithfully. Be committed to be committed.